Okay, let's turn to Romans chapter 9, verse 27, please. I was still working on this at 6.08, and Pam hollered up and said, aren't you going to get a shower? So I did. Romans 9.27, out on the information table there is information indeed because we have the expanded paraphrase of Romans with some infused commentary, more than I expected, but there's going to end up being 30 or 40 insights after we're done with this paraphrase. It's the most monumental task I've ever undertaken as a pastor, but it's Challenge is equaled and overcome by the blessedness of it, the blessing of it. It's been remarkable. But Romans 9.27 is we're going to pick up tonight. 1, 1 through 9.26 are available in three increments out on the information table. So I recommend sometimes just a passing reading is all you need. This distilled phase of Romans has the power, I think, and the potential to be a concentrated blessing greater than we found in the exposition, because this is the concentrated insights from Romans and the fruit of God's graciousness and discovery. Romans 9, 27 And this, again, this is my reading. This is greatly expanded. You'll notice when you read these that in bold print there are not only inserted bracketed comments, but also paragraphs that are double bracketed that involve insights. And the insights flow from, and they're within the flow, and not they don't do harm to the flow of the epistle. So, and I hope that they give the sense which is my goal, and that it helps your joy, which is my pastoral goal. Romans 9.27, I know you're all, as they said in evangelical churches, prayed up. So let's go. Romans 9.27, the opponent has stepped into the fray again here, and he has an objection to Paul. But Isaiah cries over Israel, saying, Though the number of the sons of Israel is as the grains of the sands of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. I just have to say this sounds like so much preaching going on today. Only a remnant will be saved. Verse 28, for the Lord will complete and cut short what he does on earth. Now, it's very important that we understand this word complete and cut short on the earth, which means in the land of Israel. In a period called the 70 weeks of years, this word suntemno is used, and that's what Paul is alluding to, I believe, as Isaiah is also alluding to Daniel 9, 24 and 26. In the Theodosian Greek text, that same word is used, that's used in Isaiah and in, here in Romans 9.28. The point of this being that what God does in the course of history 
and not the 70 times 7 idea. This is Isaiah prophesying what will happen in the course of history on the earth. And again, the reference to the 70 times 7 idea in Daniel 9, 24 to 27 is revealed by Jesus in Matthew 18, 22 to be the demonstration of universal forgiveness of sins. That 70 times 7 being a universal forgiveness of the sins of all mankind. It happened in the crucified Christ in the land of Israel. And so Jesus actually took that 70 times 7 only mentioned elsewhere in Daniel to be the demonstration of universal forgiveness of sins, which was released from the cross with Jesus' petition to the Father to forgive them, Father. That is all of humanity. So I wanted to insert that. These insights, I think what we'll do next before approaching our theological increment is distill even more and get these distilled insights and fan them out a little bit. So again, let's start with 927. The opponent says, but Isaiah cries over Israel saying, though the number of the, of the sons of Israel is as the grains of the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved for the Lord will complete and cut short what he does on earth. And verse 29, still objecting, the opponent says, and just as Isaiah predicted, this is Isaiah 1, 9, had the Lord of the armies, that's Yahweh Svaot, that's Yahweh, it looks like this in the Hebrew text, that's TZ, T-Z-V-A-O-T, Svaot, meaning the Lord of the armies, had Yahweh of the armies not left behind a seed, we would have become as Sodom and would have come to resemble Gomorrah. Now, the objection here, this again is bracketed commentary, double bracketed commentary, but flowing with the text in order to give the sense and clarify. The objection is made on the basis of what we call a form of salvation history. It's a way a lot of people approach the scriptures today. The opponent makes his objection on a purely historical view of the prophecy of Isaiah and does not see that the prophet is speaking only of a remnant or a small percentage of Israel experiencing the salvation that is in Christ Jesus through the course of history, only through the course of history. But Paul sees the salvation of all of Israel, we'll see that, arrow forward, Romans eleven twenty six, in the Christ event itself, and its full manifestation coming at the parousia. In other words, Paul is not salvation historical. Paul is Christological, eschatological, soteriological. This objection is also a modern one. This objection is a modern one. The misreading of Isaiah and the small remnant passage. Scriptures are often cited by the nearsighted who are temporarily blinded to the universal horizon of God's mercy. 
as Israel was blinded temporarily and is blinded temporarily so that she couldn't believe if she wanted to, according to John 12, 39 and 40, very interestingly, and will still be saved. So all of theologians today that read the scriptures this way are merely temporarily blinded and nearsighted. So again, this is what I wrote. I take responsibility for it. Scriptures are often cited by the nearsighted who are temporarily blinded to the universal horizon of God's mercy, which comes later in Romans 11.32, and the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, as well as the universally salutary or salvific effect of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of this myopic reasoning, narrow-minded reasoning, with a very narrow horizon, Many agree with Augustine's conclusions that the vast majority of humanity are and will be populating a hell of endless torment. This is how serious these misreadings can be. Paul then answers in verse 30. What shall I say in response to this then? Clearly there is a dialogue, a dialectic going on here. What shall I say in response to this then? How about this? The Gentiles who were not actively pursuing a status of rectitude have apprehended the status of rectitude. But it's a rectitude that is from faith. This reminds us back in Romans 9 that it is not of him that runs, but of God who shows mercy. So the Gentiles weren't even running and they attained the prize. The Jews are running, but they're using the wrong way to attain righteousness by the law. And so they're not obtaining run as they will. And that's just a spontaneous commentary, which shows this thing is endless. But again, Paul says, what shall I say in response to this? Then how about the Gentiles who were not actively pursuing a status of rectitude have apprehended the status of rectitude. But it's a rectitude or a righteousness that is, notice this, from faith. The phrase used here is ek pistios, and it's used also in Romans 1.17 and 3.26. It's important that we understand how this all coheres. Dia pistios in Romans 3.22 and 25. Ek pistios in Romans 1.17 and 3.26 refers to this faith as the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So Paul says they have apprehended the status of righteousness, but it's a righteousness that is from faith on the basis of Messiah's fidelity, a status that is in compliance with justification by Messiah's faithful death. In verse 31, Paul continues and he said, but Israel Pursuing a law leading to righteousness did not attain that law. Here's a hint. No such law exists. No such law leading to righteousness exists. You have to go to Galatians for this one, 321. If a law, if there was a law that could lead to righteousness, or if there was a law, that could lead to life, then salvation would be through the following of a law, but no such law exists. So that's what Paul is referring to here. 
Again, Israel, verse 31, pursuing a law leading to righteousness, did not attain that law. Bracket, such a law does not exist. The opponent, verse 32, why did Israel not attain this rectitude, this God-approved livingness? Paul, because they were not pursuing the status of rectitude on the basis of faithfulness. That is Christ's faithfulness. But on the basis of works in compliance with the law of Moses. While pursuing, they struck their foot against the stone that trips people up. Not only then, but today. As it is written, look, Yahweh says, I'm laying a stone in Zion that makes people trip. Giving new meaning to the statement, are you tripping? It's a rock of offense. The word here is Petron Scandalon, which is what Jesus Christ crucified is called. The cross of Christ is a scandalon. It's an offense. But those who believe in him will not be put to shame. This is a conflation of Isaiah 8:14 and 28:16. This has to do not with believing in him for salvation or justification, but believing in him and not being put to shame because you believe the right gospel. Double bracket commentary therefore, this is a long one but important. This tripping stone is none other than the stone whom the builders rejected. Those builders being the religious leaders in Jerusalem who rejected the stone, Jesus Christ. But God made that same rejected stone the keystone of a new creation, the cornerstone, headstone of a new creation. That's a reference to Psalm 118, 22 to 23, Matthew 21, 42. This rock of offense, then, also, is none other than Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 10.4, 10.4, good buddy. Compared with Galatians 5.11, which shows the cross to be a scandal, which shows why certain preachers at the time did not want to preach it, because their motive was to escape persecution, which they would have received from their fellow Jewish Christians and non-Christians. So this rock of offense is none other than Christ and him crucified. So however you want to call it, the stone that trips up or the rock of scandal, it's Christ and the gospel. Now, we lead into Romans 10. This is the most treacherous territory that I've trod in this study. But I'm more and more convinced, and this is our third time through, probably my eighth time through, and I'm going to take my stand on this. Romans 10 reveals that the distinction throughout Romans, the epistle, this is an intro leading into Romans 10. Romans 10 reveals that the distinction throughout Romans, the epistle is not between a gospel, closed in quotes, 
that proclaims salvation by human works and a gospel that proclaims salvation by the human act of believing. That's not the distinction. Salvation by a human act of believing versus salvation by an, a human act or human acts of obedience to the law. What's really at odds here is the salvation through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ versus either the human act of believing or the human act of works. So the distinction, see, you can see this has to be pre, this has to become a doctrine. This has to be developed as a doctrine, which I think it's my mission to do that. But rather, the distinction is between a gospel of salvation through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So again, the distinction is between a gospel of salvation by human acts, whether those acts are works of the law or believing, confessing, repenting, surrender, commitment, etc., versus a gospel of salvation by an act of God in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. That's the gospel. The real gospel proclaims salvation by unconditional grace through Jesus Christ's faithful obedience through which he headed for death and resurrection. It is not our faith versus our works. It is not our faith versus our works. It is Christ's faithfulness which led him to death. It is Christ's faithfulness versus our works and our faith or our human individual act of believing. For this reason, Romans 10 introduces a third voice into this argument, a third character, the voice of a character by the name of the righteousness of faith. And this is clear when you see it as an ongoing dialectic. It can be shown that Paul speaks in Romans 10, 1 through 4. Paul speaks in Romans 10, 1 to 4. 10, 1 to 4, Paul. 10, 5, Moses, or Paul citing Moses. 10, 6 to 17, the righteousness of faith. Or we could say, The crowd that says with the Reformation and elsewhere and all the way to our present time, the salvation comes through faith, a human act of believing. It is by grace, but it's through a human act of believing. The gospel that I preach and the gospel that I believe is that it is by unconditional grace through the faithfulness of another, that being Jesus Christ. And therefore that demands a universal salvation. It just simply demands it. Righteousness of faith. Or we could say the justification by faith crowd. And so Rome, and then Paul picks up with the adversative. This is a strong adversative particle. Allah. On the contrary, au contraire, but I say. So we see a clear break, 10, 18 to 21, is Paul again. So Paul brackets this chapter, but in between, he allows for Moses to speak 
and for the righteousness by faith crowd to speak. And then he takes umbrance with both and says, but I say, and this is the Pauline gospel, which is the gospel of God about his son. So let's see how it works out and we'll see in a moment. But let me, I'm still leading into this now. So it can be shown that Paul speaks in Romans 10, 1 to 4. And then again in 10, 18 to 21. Moses is quoted directly from Leviticus 18, 5 in Romans 10, 5. Then the righteousness of faith is introduced as a character or as a representative of a gospel of salvation through individual believing. In Romans 10, 6 through 17. Moses, again, then the righteousness of faith. In this section, we may say that the classic Reformation argument is given. Salvation by faith and they'll even say, by faith alone, sola fides, faith alone, that is, by an act of personal faith in Jesus Christ. Verses are cited in defense of this counter position. But remember, just citing verses can mean that you are citing verses with an oversight of what they're saying. And a near sight nearsightedness called myopia, which Peter refers to in second Peter. This is it's blowing my mind where this is going because I'm doing this now, but let me continue. Verses are cited in defense of this counter position. That is a position counter to Paul, just as verses are cited by the opponent of Paul to support his counter position, a justification by the works of the law or salvation by Obedience to the works of the law. This position is not Romans 10, 6 through 17. This position is not the position of Paul. Now, I realize I've got to stand here for this and stand before God on this one. This is not the position of Paul. It is a ref- standard Reformation position. And so the gospel that Paul proclaims is a salvation that is entirely by God's grace through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, who is the righteous one. All the way back, arrow backward, Romans one seventeen, A salvation that encompasses takes in, includes not only all of humanity and all of time, but all of creation, including that part of creation, which is carefully listened now, incapable of believing. He's going to restore creation, including the animal population. Well, what did they do? How could they believe? They're incapable of believing. So are all human beings, unless God grants the capability. But here we go. It's a salvation that encompasses not only all of humanity and all of time, but all of creation, including that part which is incapable of believing or of remaining in unbelief. 
In fact, and this is extremely important, look at it yourself sometime, you'll be amazed. John 12, 39 and 40, which is rooted in Isaiah 6, 10. In fact, the leaders and many of the people in Jerusalem in the time of Jesus were, quote, unable to believe. Unable to believe. You say, well, it's because of their own arrogance. No, no, it does not say that. Unable to believe because Isaiah also says he, God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. God did. So that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and be converted and I would heal them. In other words, God's saying, I don't want to not heal or convert them. I just don't want them to be healed and converted on the basis of their believing. So I'll make it impossible for them to believe so I can hurl them into the same prison that I hurled the Gentiles in a prison of unbelief so that I can save them according to my mercy. You see? So then, God made them unable to believe. I didn't say it. It says it in John, and John said Isaiah said it, and Isaiah said God said it through Isaiah. God made them unable to believe because as Paul explains in Romans eleven thirty to 32, arrow forward, this is like the creature full of eyes, some facing out and some facing backwards. That's exactly what I'm doing here. The creature full of eyes, some forward, some backward. The interpretation of Romans, look back, look forward. You get the idea here. God made them unable to believe because as Paul explains in Romans eleven thirty to 32, eyes forward, God was imprisoning both the Gentiles and the Jews in unbelief so that he would have mercy on all. In other words, God was actually preventing, preventing individual or group believing as the means of salvation, so that salvation would be according to his universal mercy based on the faithfulness of his own son of his love on the basis or for all. That's the gospel about God's son. I mean, Titus 3.5 backs it up, doesn't it? When it says, it is not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration, by the spirit whom he poured out plentifully on us. And he never mentions faith in it. And he goes on to say in 3, 7, by grace are you justified? No faith in Titus 3, 5 through 7, only mercy, salvation, and grace. Interesting. It frees the preacher because the, free, the preacher, it doesn't have to go out and invite people to believe. He just has to proclaim the message and God does the waking up. All right, here's Romans 10. You said, I thought we'd never get there. Well, I think we needed to lead into it. Paul says this, brothers and sisters, Roman saints, friends, Romans, countrymen. No, the desire of my heart. And my petition to God for Israel regards their salvation. 
expanded what Paul is saying here. I desire with all my heart that my countrymen would experience even now the salvation that is by God's saving righteousness through Messiah Jesus faithfulness. The reason is because many of them are now perishing, having considered the word of the cross to be nonsense. We carry that over into 1 Corinthians 1.18. Verse 2, I can testify about them, Paul says, meaning I've been in their shoes. I know where they're at. I can testify about them that they have a zeal for God. Paul explains in Philippians 3 that his zeal was so intense that he killed people for it. A religion that kills people. Hmm. Let me think about that. I never heard of such a thing. Kills people for God. Hmm. Oh, never mind. I'm wandering. Much study makes you loopy. I guarantee it. So, they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. The knowledge he's speaking of here is the epinosis knowledge of the Son of God in his universally saving significance. The knowledge of the truth, in other words, that's embodied in Jesus. Their zeal for God has nothing to do with their knowledge, which they don't have yet. See, it's God's will not only save all mankind, but bring all mankind to the knowledge of the truth. This is what they lack. They lack the knowledge of the truth, which would allow them to be experience salvation, even now, in some meaningful measure. That's what Paul wants. And by desiring, well, no, hold on. Verse 3, because being ignorant of God's righteousness, which is his saving act in Jesus Christ, that's apocalypsed by the gospel. And by desiring to establish their own rectitude, which would result in what? Self-righteousness. They have not been subordinated. They have not been caused to submit to God's righteousness, which is the saving act of God in Christ. For Christ is, listen to this, this is a big 10-4. Christ is rightly perceived as the end. And this word telos is extremely important. Jesus said, I'm the beginning and the end. Telos, T-E-L-O-S, in Revelation twenty-two thirteen, Jesus is the beginning and the end. For Christ is rightly perceived as the end of the law. That means both end in terms of end game and goal. Which one is it? It's both. I'll, I'll explain in a moment. For Christ is rightly perceived as the end of the law as a means for rectitude to everyone who believes. In other words, let me say it this way. By this, Paul does not mean that individual believing is the condition for salvation but that it is the stipulation for perceiving Jesus Christ to be the goal of the Torah and the end of the Torah as a means to attain righteousness or justification in God's eyes. Arrow back, Romans 3.20. 
Christ is known as the telos of the Torah, as a means, in other words, and even as the identity of righteousness. To the Jewish people that believed in Paul's day that did not believe, they believed the Torah to be the standard of righteousness, the law itself to be the standard of righteousness. But the gospel proclaims Jesus Christ to be that standard. And so, in fact, Jesus Christ's very identity is righteousness, our righteousness. Why do I have righteousness? Because Jesus Christ is my righteousness. Well, what'd you do? (laughs) Sinned. What'd you do? Well, I gave up my sinning. No, you didn't. Not unless Christ is living in you. Let's go on. That's preach. The preacher in me rears his ugly head once in a while. So the Torah is no longer perceived to be the standard of righteousness to those who believe. Jesus Christ is. He is the eternal word made flesh. Now, though the Torah is and never has been, it is not now, nor has it ever been the means to attain righteousness or justification in God's sight. It nevertheless stands tall, as Paul said earlier, as the testimony of Jesus Christ, whom God has made to be righteousness for us all. Fulfilling this wonderful prophecy, look at it yourself, meditate on it, reflect upon it, discover for yourself. I put this in here. The days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up a righteous branch of David. This is Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. And you can confer with Romans 1, 3 and 15, 12 on this. He will reign wisely, the branch of The righteous branch of David is also the seed according to hereditary lineage of David in Romans 1.3. I will raise up, the word for resurrection there is used, a righteous branch of David. He will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. Love this verse, verse 6. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is what he will be named. We've already seen Yahweh Zizvaot. Here is an even more far-reaching one. Yahweh Tzidkenu. Yahweh, our righteousness. He shall be called. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is what he will be named, Yahweh to Sidkenu, which means the Lord is our righteousness. Does this remind you of 1 Corinthians 1.30? It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 1.30. Then I, again, I spent a lot of time in a book called the Bible. So it reminds me 
of God has made him to be for us righteousness. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Of course we are the righteousness of God in him because he is the righteousness of God for us. You're never the same after you have an explosion in your brain occur from the meeting of 1 Corinthians 1.30 with 2 Corinthians 5.21. You will never be the same when that blows out the cobwebs in your brain. I'm not done with my little comment here. He will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is what he will be named. Yahweh to Sidkenu, the Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, Jesus Christ is Yahweh to Sidkenu. For all humanity in all of its times, he is both the end of the Torah as a means for attaining justification in God's eyes. And he is the goal of the Torah as the testimony of Yahweh himself being the righteousness of his people. That is all of humanity in all of its times. Here, Moses, verse five, here comes Moses for Moses writes of the righteousness or the rectitude that is of the law saying that the person who does these things will live by them. (laughs) Moses wasn't saying if you do these things, you will live by these. He says the person who does live by these things, try and find him, will live by these things. That's Leviticus 18.5. Also a very important verse for the study of Galatians. So again, forgive my comment, but it's to make this clear. Moses in Leviticus 18.5 is appealed to here as a support for Paul's assertion that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. It is true what Moses said that the person who does the things prescribed in the law will live by them. In fact, Israel was able to live securely in the land when it lived by the law rather than went into idolatry. But this is not an assertion that one receives eternal life or enters the life of the coming age by such observance of the law. Moses didn't say that or intend that. Now, a new character, again, is introduced into the conversation. Paul has a personification of the righteousness that comes through faith, have a voice. He lets them have a voice. Whether he was foreseeing the Reformation or he's calling, hey, Luther, Zwingli, hey, you guys come on over here. You you can say what you want to say now. Or there was already a group of believers preaching a gospel of justification by personal, individual faith in Jesus rather than Jesus' faithfulness. 
So Paul has a personification of the righteousness that comes through faith, have a voice. Now again, whether Paul was dealing with another person or group who were preaching a gospel of justification by an individual's faith, or whether he was foreseeing such a gospel as one that became popular in the Reformation era and is still popular in our own time, whether he was doing one of those two things is not specified. Nevertheless, there is a contradiction, an irreconcilable one, between a message that preaches justification by an act of human believing, a human act of believing, even if the believing is evoked by God, and justification by the act of God, on the other hand. Justification in the eyes of God through a human act of believing is just as unlikely and, in fact, is in error as justification by human acts of obedience to the law. So the real issue is justification by the act of God through the singularly efficacious faithfulness of Jesus Christ. In the unfolding of Romans 10, Paul allows Moses to speak to show the fallacy of justification and salvation by the doing of the things commanded in the law. In 10, 6 to 17, he allows a hearing of the gospel of justification by each individual's act of believing, which, oddly enough, as it always does today, also brings in the notions of calling on the name of the Lord and confessing Jesus as Lord which is a confession that, oddly enough, all of humanity, in fact, all rational beings will make, according to Philippians 2, 9 to 11, not as the means of their salvation, but as a free pledge of worshipful allegiance to Jesus as Yahweh. So even for the people that think that all people are going to be, believe and be saved, the scripture says all, all people are going to believe, but not to be saved but in order to worshipfully enter into an allegiance to Jesus Christ willingly. So this gospel of righteousness through the individual's faith finally puts the burden of responsibility heavily on the shoulders of the Christian, especially the missionary or the preacher, who must somehow persuade or invite or coax people to believe. How many Christians think, oh, if... I didn't witness to my neighbor and they died. They're going to hell because of me. That's because you believed a gospel of individual believing rather than God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them at Calvary's cross. So here's the righteousness of faith. Verse six. Here's the character. RF. Righteousness of faith. But the righteousness that comes from faith speaks this way. Don't you think he's personified something called the righteousness that comes through faith? It speaks. Who speaks? Persons speak. And it says this, he speaks this way. Do not say in your heart. Now that's Deuteronomy 9.4. Who will ascend into heaven? Which rightly says you can't get saved by ascending into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, into Sheol, which people mispronounce 
mistranslate today as hell. It's because they don't have a hell of a lot of knowledge. Who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Rightly, you can't get saved by descending into Sheol to bring Christ up or to ascend into heaven to bring Christ down. That's right. But what does it say? The righteousness of faith, that is, which we might call the justification by human faith crowd today. What does it say? It says the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we proclaim. Here's the problem. Paul isn't saying what I proclaim. He's saying what the righteousness of faith crowd proclaims which takes in a whole lot of the Reformation crowd and the whole Reformed church and a lot, most, the majority of preachers on the radio and television today. And I'm not criticizing them. I was blind until God opened my eyes. I was hardened until God took out the stony heart. I did not know these things 10 years ago, really. I had to study. And the Lord was gracious enough and had such a sense of humor. He said, let me reveal some stuff to him. (laughs) Yeah. Now, the righteousness that comes from faith. Paul does not proclaim this word of faith. Where else does he say, I'm proclaiming a word about faith? He says everywhere else, I'm proclaiming Christ. It is Christ whom I preach. So he's not talking here. Paul does not proclaim this so-called word of faith. But Jesus Christ and his faithfulness according to the apocalypse of a mystery in Romans 16, 25. That's what Paul preaches. The righteousness of faith is still speaking then, saying this. You ever heard this one before? If you confess with your mouth... See, it's not just simply you believing now. You got to do it. See, it's just like the law. Get circumcised, but you got to do the rest of the law. Believe, but you got to confess. And you got to get baptized. And you got to surrender. And you got to repent. And you got to be so sorry for your sins that God would be looked down upon you with pity and say, well, I might as well forgive him then. If you confess with your mouth the Lord as Jesus, which everybody's going to do. In the eschaton. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Now please contrast this future tense. Future tense. You will be saved. Please contrast this future tense. You will be saved. Which the word of the faith says. With this little statement made by. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2.8, by grace you have been saved (laughs) through a faithfulness that is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, meaning not of works or your personal faith, lest any person should boast. You say, I don't boast in my works. No, but do you boast in your believing? I've been saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Really? I've been saved by Christ alone. Not sliced alone. Christ alone. So then, 
The righteousness of faith says if you confess with your mouth the Lord is Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes unto righteousness. Where else do you see that Paul saying this? With the mouth, one confesses unto salvation. Come up here and confess that you believed. And the person comes up and said, I believed in Jesus. Do you believe Jesus is Lord? I believe Jesus is Lord. Will you confess that with your mouth? Jesus is Lord. Then you're saved. They just got saved. Everybody stand up and say, hallelujah. Now, because you really can't say hallelujah, which means praise Yahweh for salvation. So you got to say hallelujah. Now, for the scripture says, and this is correct, but wrongly placed. Listen carefully. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be ashamed. Again, this is not Paul, but the righteousness of faith speaking, which is the faith of the individual, which evidently includes an open confession and a calling on the name of Yahweh, while alluding for its own rationale to Isaiah 28, 16. Paul never says Isaiah 28, 16 has to do with a personal faith leading to salvation. He says there that faith that God awakens in us causes us not to be ashamed because it gives us a hope for which we're not ashamed, etc. And then they say, they're saying this in agreement with Paul, for there is no difference between the Jew and Greek, granted. The same Lord is rich toward all those who call upon him. That is, who call upon him for help or for salvation in this. In verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Where did Paul say that elsewhere? Nowhere. Let me listen. Let me carefully. This is. You talk. This is brain surgery stuff. This is rightly dividing the word of truth by not harming brain tissue. Here's my bracketed commentary. This is, again, the future tense of sozo in verse 13. Future tense of sozo for salvation. And he quotes Joel 2.32, which in the Septuagint, or the Greek translation, is Joel 3.5. This is actually put right in here. But that is a prophecy within A.D. 70 trajectory, not a verse that says that you must believe for eternal life. This is a prophecy from Joel within A.D. 70 trajectory, meaning that all those in Israel who believe in Jesus as the Christ will be saved from the historical judgment coming on Jerusalem its temple, and the land of Judea, which Jesus prophesied in the Olivet Discourse, Mark 13 and its parallels, Luke 21, Matthew 24, and John spoke of in Revelation 6 through 19. So again, this is not Paul saying that one must call on the Lord to be eternally saved. Just as it is not Paul saying that belief results in justification or that confession results in salvation. So, the righteousness of faith is still speaking, putting all the heavy burden on the missionary, 
the preacher, the pastor, the witnessing Christian. So verse 14, consequently, says the righteousness of faith, this is the reason. And this is why people volunteer to be missionaries. Consequently, how will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How can they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Moreover, how will they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how timely is the arrival of the feet of those who proclaim good things. Again, misapplying this to eternal salvation, Isaiah 52, 7, Nahum 1, 15. But not all have believed the gospel. Oh, how terrible. Therefore, as Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Akoe. Isaiah 53.1. Therefore, faith, meaning in this context, the faith that saves, comes from the report. And the report that is the word about Christ. Here's some more brain surgery. By this account, Romans 10, 6 to 17. You come to your own conclusion on it. I'm not saying you got to believe my interpretation of this. But if you've got a different one, at least study it as long as I have. And then I'll respect you. And I say that to all, the, especially people that are my contemporaries that just disagree with this gospel so vehemently that they make accusations. I'm not, I got no axe to grind with you. I have no... Bitterness about past associations. In fact, all I have is gratitude for past associations. By this account, those who do not believe will not be eternally saved. If you're saved by believing eternally, then by not believing, you're not eternally saved by this account. But 1 Timothy 4.10 speaks authoritatively in sync with Paul's gospel and thus with the gospel of God saying that God is the savior of all of humanity, especially though not exclusively of those who believe. First Timothy 4.10, God is the savior of all human beings through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The only faith that's efficacious for salvation is the faithfulness of Jesus, the righteous one. He keeps shouting it into this generation, and you get it, but this generation doesn't get it. The next one, I hope, does. Those in whom faith is evoked experience, there's the key word, this salvation in the form of a foretaste of the age to come. Hebrews 6, 5, while in this life, which means before life after death, and in life after death, you experience the light of glory, and it's glorious, but you're still waiting for resurrection, which is life after life after death. So while in this life, before the life after death, which is a hell of a lot better than this life, and before the life after life after death, which is a whole hell of a lot better than life after death, in bodily resurrection, before 
life after death and before life after death after life after death we can experience a foretaste of the coming age in resurrection that's what paul wanted israel to experience he even wished himself accursed if that could happen but guess what it can't happen because christ became a curse for us paul you can't do paul was not crucified for us we were not baptized in the name of Paul. Some of us might not have even been ritually baptized, but the Holy Spirit baptized us into union with Christ. That's me rambling. Now, here's the key. Paul starts talking again in 18. Listen, the, the adversative, talk about adversity, the adversative particle, Allah. Allah. Not Allah, Allah, A-L-L-A. Adversative particle means that it sets up a contrast. So Paul's saying, but in contrast to what the righteousness of faith crowd says, I say, can you see this? I hope, I've done this so many, I've done it now. This is the third time I've done it in earnest, but I'm going to have to write a doctrine about it. Verse 18, but. I say the righteousness of faith speaks in 10, 6 through 17. Moses speaks in 10, 5. Paul speaks in Romans 10, 1 to 4. Paul speaks in 10, 18 to 21. But I say in contrast to what the righteousness of faith, justification by faith crowd says. Did they really not? Here, as you say, that is without a preacher. Did they really not hear because a preacher wasn't sent to them? You say, it's always, what about the man in the bush country? What about you in your mansion? What about you driving your Bentley, believing this false gospel? The guy in the bush has more fun. The guy in the bush country doesn't even have to wear any clothes, hardly. The guy in the bush country is saved by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. He just doesn't know it yet, or maybe he does. Maybe the Holy Spirit woke him up to that, or woke her up to that, without a preacher. Look at what Paul says. His reasoning is ingenious. Did they really not hear? On the contrary, yes, they have. The righteousness of faith says they haven't heard. Paul says, yes, they have. Because you say righteousness of faith, they have to hear to believe and be saved. But I say they might as well have heard because they are saved. They all have. Yes, they have. And Paul here does not mean that they have all literally heard the gospel, but that they have all as good as have heard it because the whole world will be and has been saved in the Christ event. So he says, yes, they have heard. Because as the scripture says, their voice has gone into all the earth. Their voice has gone Psalm 19, 4 of the Psalms, into all the earth. 
which is Paul's way of showing that the horizon of salvation is as wide as that of creation. And that, in fact, his salvation is a new creation via something coming up, instaration, the universal effect of the cross. But verse 19, we're ready to wind it down. I'm going a little bit over, but this is urgent. This is urgent. This is urgent. This makes the time that we spend doing other things almost look like time not as well spent as this. But verse 19, but Allah, Paul again, but in contrast to what the righteousness of faith crowd says, in contrast, I, Paul say, did not Israel understand? Did Israel not understand? First, Moses said, now Paul's quoting Moses only with creativity and proper correctness. First, Moses said, quote, I will make you jealous Speaking who? Israel. I will make you jealous by those who are not even a nation. And I'll provoke you to anger by a nation that is void of understanding. As you see them. Then Isaiah backed him up very boldly. Isaiah was very bold. Paul was very bold. May I say boldly, I am very bold to say these things. Yes, I am. I'm bold. Then Isaiah backed him up very boldly. Here Paul cites Isaiah correctly as he quotes Moses correctly, saying, for Yahweh, I was found by those who were not seeking me. Oh, man. I revealed myself apocalyptically to those who were not asking. Isaiah 65, 1. But to Israel, he turned around and says, Yahweh says through Moses, all day long, or through Isaiah, rather, representative of all the prophets, All day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. Isaiah 65, 2. But follow the arrows. Romans 11, 28. Israel are enemies of the gospel for your sake. So that God can sum them up with you. Romans 11, 33 to 36. In the universal return of all to God. Please notice that the law and the prophets... Romans 1, 2, arrow back, arrow back, Romans 3, 21, arrow forward, eyes forward, Romans 6, 16, 26. The law and the prophets attest to the gospel as proclaimed by Paul. First, Moses, representing the law, and then Isaiah, representing the prophets, forcefully and boldly back Paul's gospel. So, we're going to Romans 11 next. And I have some stuff on that, but we're done. So thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We're grateful. Oh, how grateful we are through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who shall deliver us from this inability to believe? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord.